Hello and welcome to Healthline 3, I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Vic Chatrath of Bossier Orthopedics about fractures and sports injuries. We'll be taking your calls throughout the show and as a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room with your TV turned way down low and then when you call in, we can hear your questions and you can hear the answers. The number to call is 318-219-4569 and you'll see that a little later in the show. It'll be across the bottom of the screen. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Chatrath. It's so good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me here. I really enjoy having this conversation, getting an opportunity to connect. So thank you so much. Oh, sure. It's always a pleasure. And you and I were talking during the break how much fun we have and how informative. And I always have my own questions, and you're very patient. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. So let's talk about fractures and what kind of fractures you actually see in your practice. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm fortunate enough to be double fellowship trained, which means I spent an extra year training in fracture surgery and an extra year in joint replacement surgery, which we've spoken about in the past as well. Uh, fractures vary, uh, vary from pediatric fractures, which are children. They can go on to car accidents, motor vehicle accidents, and then go all the way up to the senior population uh, who may miss a step, have a hip fracture from a trivial fall, or the other one we commonly see is a wrist or an ankle fracture, uh, shoulder injury. Those are some of the common fractures that we see across. Okay, and it might seem like an obvious question, but depending, I guess, on the patient, the different degree of fractures, how do you, what are the different ways that you treat a fracture? So we have the whole spectrum of treatment, which may vary from a simple thing like putting a cast or a splint on it, all the way to doing surgery, it depends on the age of the patient. It depends on the severity of the fracture. Uh, it depends on the outcome. So for someone who's 90 years old, we tend to be less aggressive. For someone who's six years old, we tend to be less aggressive. Someone who's say 30 to 60, they're in their active working age. They want to get back to work as soon as possible. We try to be a little more aggressive and try to get them the best function, sometimes that means having an operation, which a child or the other extreme is the elderly people we try to avoid. And that's a good point because I've had experience that with an elderly person in my family. Mm -hmm. And so if, if someone does break, like not, she didn't break the hip, but she broke the bone at the top of it. So there was a slight fracture there. Sure. And they were saying, well, they won't do surgery on her. They won't do surgery on her. So what do you do for someone who has a fracture, but they're not very good to go to surgery? So uh, we do a lot of methods which may vary from splinting, putting a brace on them, the other option is to use physical therapy. They are an important part of our team. They help in coaching how to like minimize weight bearing on that fracture. If it's not a fracture which is meant for surgery, how can we protect that area? Allow mother nature to do its job, give it time to heal. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, earlier we were talking about displacement of the fracture mm -hmm. and I'm, uh, it's a little technical. So uh, the way I simplify it is, I go there and say, hey, if they're like this, probably no operation. If they're like this, we're still okay. If they're like this, we're doing an operation on this thing. <laughs> so and that's you do see that, yeah. I'm sure. You see some really incredible fractures where the bone is just split and it's, yes. it's a lot of distance. There. Yes, and sometimes we see car accidents oh. where, I, I, again, I don't want to scare people, but the bone is sticking out of the skin. Uh, yeah. And uh, those are really bad injuries. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that I was trained 
and I'm able to help people. I do a lot of these, and uh, people have good outcomes. But ultimately, the hope is that we avoid fractures. But if they happen, we need to have the best tools available to treat them. Okay. And so how important is it to, um, obviously, to prevent? What can we do to prevent fractures? And then you were talking about actually a second fracture. Correct. So preventing fractures, uh, simple things like in the playground. They have now new surfaces mm -hmm. so that if the child falls off a monkey bar, we break the fall. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, if you're out rollerblading, roller skating, make sure you have pads and helmets and uh, all the protective gear on. Okay. Uh, moving on to traffic accidents, please, please wear your seatbelt. Mm -hmm. It's there for a reason. Make sure the airbags are working. These things can be life-saving. Okay. One of the common fractures we see in car accidents is called a hip dislocation because your knee strikes the dashboard, pushes your hip out of the socket. Oh. Uh, so road safety obviously is quite important. Then comes the other spectrum where we see the senior population and uh, postmenopausal women. What happens is with menopause, women start losing a lot of their calcium and uh, the bones become brittle. And doctors or family doctors usually get something called a DEXA scan done. A DEXA scan is like a bone scan which tells us how strong your bone is, to put it in simple words. It gives you numbers, tells us that this is your risk of having a fracture over the next few years. So the bone density test, when Correct. we hear women go in and have bone density yes, tests. Yes, exactly. What this is, so you're explaining exactly what happens when the bone density, this is this is important, <laughs> but listen, but yeah. you know, because that seems like it's one of those ro routine things that uh -huh. we get, but to explain really, and having you here, to explain really what they're looking for in bone density and what it really means, Correct. what the numbers mean. So there is a number called a T-score and a Z-score, which again, your doctor will help you interpret those numbers. As they go in the negatives, that means your risk of fracture increases with that number. So you can go from having normal bone density to osteopenia, means the bone is weak, to osteoporosis, which is the most common term right. we hear, that the bones are really brittle and like washed out. So barely any calcium remaining, so very prone to a fracture from just even missing a step. Now, there are treatments, take calcium, take vitamin D, a healthy diet, no smoking, no alcohol. Uh, apart from that, then we have special treatments available which are in the form of either medication, in extreme cases, even injectable drugs. Now, these uh, medications can be expensive. They occasionally do have side effects, so they need monitoring. So this is not something we would start on our own, like we go to a pharmacy and buy calcium and vitamin D. These other drugs are prescription drugs. So either your family doctor, your surgeon, or your endocrinologist, they will work with you and monitor these. So some person might actually get injections to increase their bone density? Correct, That's in possible? extreme cases we okay. have to do that. Uh, as I said, these are quite expensive, so you need insurance approval, you need to make sure you get on the right plan for it, and uh, yes, that helps to increase the bone density. And is bone density only as you age, or could a young person have low bone density also? Yeah, there are certain conditions in which uh, younger people can have a low bone density. If you have parathyroid, which is a tiny organ near your thyroid, mm. uh, if you have kidney disease, uh, 
certain cancers. Um, if you are in bed for a certain other disease, but you've not been moving much, that can also influence your bone density. So there are other conditions, even in younger people, which can cause your bone density to go down. Okay. And is there, how much does diet and exercise play into strengthening your bones and muscles and taking care of your body? And also, um, can you, what's, is there a lifestyle that we could adapt really early to make sure that we're increasing the bone density? Absolutely. So I think we've spoken about it a long time ago on your show, <laughs> that there are recommendations from the National Institute of Health, which say that every senior should get 30 minutes of weight-bearing activity. I'll repeat it, 30 minutes of weight-bearing activity five times a week, okay? And by weight-bearing, I mean going for a walk. If you can't run, you have bad knees, bad hips, it doesn't mean you have to go for a jog, even a stationary bike. Just move, just get moving. So that's very important to prevent loss of bone density, Mm. okay? On top of it, Smoking is one of the biggest factors which uh, affects bone density. Uh, Alcohol certainly does. Getting a healthy diet, enough nutrients in it. A lot of people tend to be vitamin D deficient. We think we live in a very sunny area, but honestly, we spend most of our life indoors to escape the sun. So we end up becoming vitamin D deficient. So getting your vitamin D levels checked is an important part of it. And that seems like only maybe the last 10 to 12 years or something, we kept hearing about vitamin D, vitamin D, vitamin D. Do you think that correlates with people being more aware of skin cancers and damage to the skin or just living in a culture like here? It's true. We stay indoors a lot, especially now because of the heat. The heat is actually dangerous. So we do stay inside for comfort and to stay safe. So we're not getting that natural vitamin D from the sun. Exactly. So like you said, the modern lifestyle has had a big part to play in it. Uh, a lot of us actually don't mow the yard anymore. <laughs> we're, even moving, we're moving on to getting these automatic robots <laughs> to... Yeah, we don't uh, have those outside chores anymore. We uh, used right. to gardening and... So yeah. uh, that's where you get your vitamin D, right? And right now with the heat advisory, uh, we're telling people not to go outside, but the other side effect is we're staying indoors, we're not getting enough sunlight, not enough exercise. <laughs> so uh, need to find a balance between it. And so is that finding more foods, uh, finding foods, or uh, taking vitamins, is that good enough? Um, Just store-bought vitamins, you know, just regular over-the-counter vitamins, or do we Uh, need to do our research and focus on good foods that give us vitamin D? How do we do that if we're not outside? I would always start with good foods rather than medication. And uh, if your doctor feels that, you know, you need your vitamin D level measured, it's a blood test which can be done, and uh, we do that and your vitamin D levels are low, then you do need a supplement. Mm -hmm. But uh, for a healthy young person, I would make sure that we're getting good food, healthy food, and getting good exercise. That's probably the starting point. Always the best start. To just do as much as you can. Just stay active and eat healthy foods. And remember that vitamins are a supplement to what you're already doing. So it is just if you can't seem to get it with the regular foods, then maybe a supplement. That's a good point. I'm going to steal that from you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, in in clinic. Dr. (laughs) Terry. You know me. It helps me to really like, I got to simple it down. I got to tarry it, tarry it up there. Absolutely. So tell us some uh, sports injuries. Let's talk about that. What kind of sports injuries do you see? Wow, that's a a great topic. since I said I see a lot of fractures, they actually tie in with sporting injuries, okay? 
Uh, when we think of sporting injuries, the most common thing that comes to our mind is uh, the Tommy Jones operation. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody's heard about it related to baseball. Uh, and then ACL, which half the NFL seems to have, right? Yes. Uh, those are kind of the extreme injuries where you end up needing an operation. Sports injuries may vary from sprains or little fractures as well, and sometimes overuse injuries. We see a lot of athletes who uh, have been doing repetitive, for example, let's talk about running, okay? And they start running, they get shin splints, mm. or they may get a stress fracture in their foot. So a stress fracture means you're putting so much repetitive load on a body part that it almost turns into a hairline crack. Then it needs rest, it needs rehabilitation, it needs physical therapy. So these are some of the non-operative part of sports injury. Probably not as glamorous as ACL or Tommy Jones. <laughs> Let's explain Tommy Jones. If people don't know what you're talking about with the Tommy Jones. So <laughs> baseball pitchers uh, tend to stretch out the ligament on the inside of the elbow. And the elbow becomes unstable. So when they're trying to pitch, the elbow won't give them the velocity or the stability to do that. So we have to tighten that up or reconstruct it. It's one of the most common operations that uh, pitchers have. Uh, hence, a lot <laughs> of people ask us about it. Yeah. Then ACL is the other one where uh, people break the ligament in the knee, which basically connects the two bones and stop the forward and backward movement in our natural knee from happening. Okay. Mm -hmm. When that ligament snaps, there are multiple ways to reconstruct that ligament. Another part of sporting injuries which is becoming very common um, is labral tears. And I'll explain what that means. The hip is a ball and a socket joint. The ball moves inside the socket. Now the socket has a lining inside it. That lining is called the labrum. People can get a tear in the labrum from various activities, especially think of it like high kicks in cheerleading mm -hmm. or martial arts, okay? When that happens, they start getting pain in the groin area. Hip arthroscopy has uh, an operation which we perform, and it's become very popular in the last 15 to 20 years, partly because it's a new procedure and there are not many surgeons trained on it. Uh, I actually felt very lucky that I got to train with one of the gentlemen I worked with in Canada who has been one of the pioneers for this. So we learned how to perform this procedure and I'm a little lucky as I said that I'm one of the few guys who is able to offer it in the area where we go in and repair the labrum or the lining of the hip joint. And uh, we can do it all through a keyhole. It's not an open procedure. So that's why it's called keyhole surgery. We hear keyhole. that sometimes, right? Yes, or arthroscopy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically three wow. tiny poke holes and uh, that allows us to get inside the hip, repair it, and uh, get people back. Is it done robotically or No, this is not done uh, laparoscopically. Yeah, laparoscopically. Uh, in my world, it will be in arthroscope, mm -hmm. but the principle is the same, mm -hmm. where uh, we put these tiny cameras inside the hip, which are essentially the size of a pen. So the tip of the camera is probably the size of uh, this pen, and that's what we put inside the hip. It's amazing. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> we're able to perform the surgery. And these cameras, 
are pretty incredible. So Very incredible. So they're 3D, it's like you're right, you're right in there. And using these cameras, you can actually see more than if you were back in the day when you, it was really open surgery, right? These, yes. these cameras really, incre they increase everything. So the resolution is the 4K resolution. Uh -huh. So the fancy TVs that you buy at Costco, Sam's Club, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> so we have these 4K cameras that we are using. And I actually have uh, some pre uh, slides when, you know, when we present at medical conferences, which uh, I have a slide from my professor actually, when we used to do it open. Uh -huh. And uh, then we have the ones the way I do it now through a camera. Uh, it is just remarkable. The difference is day and night. Uh, probably, and can you imagine back when you were doing it open and it was very successful, patients were, did well, it was fine. Could you imagine then what you're doing now? I mean, the way it's advanced is pretty incredible. Absolutely, and the patient expectation has changed as well. Oh. People want to get back to work sooner, which is awesome. They're able to go back to sporting activities. The amount of scarring, because we're not making massive cuts. These are uh, tiny. True as I said, like the tip of the pen, right? So we're not making massive cuts to do these operations. So the recovery is unbelievable as compared to what it used to be when an open procedure was performed. Now, having said that, I shouldn't uh, say that we don't do open surgery. Right. Sometimes the things are so bad that we, our hand is forced. We have to go back to open surgery. So I don't want to give out this message that we never do open surgery. It is a part of our armamentarium. It is the part of what we do, but these new techniques have given us the ability to offer maybe a step up. And that's good to know. If you have a patient and it's able and they are, they do have those concerns. They do want a faster recovery. They do want to get back to work. They do want to get back into their sports. And they are able to do it with this. Then it's, it's available. So it's yes. nice that you still have both. Yes. If it's advisable, let us get in there and really open it up and fix it. And it's good. So it's just, yeah. You have, it's nice to have so many alternatives because it, you have so many different lifestyles now. People live longer, they're more active, and, and it must be incredible to be able to offer all of that. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, today I was talking to a, a gentleman uh, this morning in clinic who's had a sporting injury, and uh, we're trying to manage it without surgery. And uh, we're going to focus on bracing, we're going to focus on uh, physical therapy, rehabilitation, and uh, hopefully avoid an operation on the knee. So sometimes people feel disappointed that, uh, you know, I've been benched. I'm going to be out of it. But then when they, when you have a conversation and talk to them and say, hey, if I do a surgery, you're going to be benched longer, <laughs> all right? Yeah. Maybe let's try this approach. And uh, it's frustrating now, but in the grand scheme of things, you may come out better with this. And that was my question. If you get much resistance from different patients, and everyone has a different situation, but they probably see you, they're coming in, wham, bam, I'm going to see Dr. Chatrath, it's going to operate, I'm going to be good. And if you say, let's try this first, um, but I'm sure, like you said, just some education and talking to them um, to explain what's really the best next step. I know, uh, <laughs> teenagers. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I played a lot of sports, so I understand when I have to break the news that, hey, you're probably gonna miss this season. Mm -hmm. uh, it is heartbreaking and yeah. I feel bad, so I sit there, crack a little joke, try to get them comfortable, connect with them. And uh, I can see that they obviously are disappointed, but most of them will work with us. One, one funny incident, which <laughs> I, I really do want to tell you. I had this 10-year-old uh, kid uh, with a broken hand. Oh. And uh, I put him in a splint, I told the family, we don't need um, any operations. This should heal really well, but we need to be in the splint.
a week later, the dad comes back and he's admin that I want you to put a club on my son's hand because I've seen somebody in Minnesota Vikings play with a club on their hand. And I want him to go back. <laughs> and <laughs> it took a lot of talking him down off the ledge that I, I think we're talking about a 10-year-old. We're not talking about a <laughs> multi-million dollar contract uh, in the NFL. So the dad wanted his son back in the game. Yes. Oh, wow. So let, let, let's try to let Mother Nature do its job and uh, get by. And let's not make it overtly complicated. <laughs> right. <laughs> but sometimes we get into these challenges. I'm sure you, you deal with a lot of that, especially when you deal with the children and then the parents. You, you have two sets of expectations right. going right. there, right? And uh, this one sticks out. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. And that, that plays a lot into it, though. It leads into another topic, too, when you have different family members, you have different people who care. could be with the elderly, too. You might have a son or daughter who wants their, doesn't understand. They want their right. parent to be taken care of, surgery, fix it. They don't want to see them in pain. Do you run into that, too? Yes, we do. Um, when we come to the senior population, uh, hip fractures are something which almost always end up needing an operation. Okay? That's sometimes very difficult to understand why are we operating on someone who's 85. Right. Okay? They have multiple medical issues. So the biggest problem is we cannot get them even up for personal hygiene. There's a risk of getting bed sores. There's a risk of getting a blood clot. There's a risk of getting pneumonias. Uh, and these can be life-threatening. So our goal is to get them out of bed, mobilize them as far as we can, as soon as we can. Okay? To do that, we, ha we perform an operation. That sometimes, as I said, is a challenge for family members to navigate that. Then they also have multiple medical issues. A lot of 85-year-old patients will have let's just say cardiac issues or heart problems. They may have other kidney problems. So we may have to involve some of my other colleagues, uh, cardiac specialists, and get an opinion from them. What can we do better to help get a good outcome out of this situation? So it's just not a fracture and uh, me showing up and, hey, I, we're going to do an operation. We want the family to understand why we are doing this, what's the expected outcome. Plus, it's not just going to be me, it's a team approach. We have the medical doctors who are an invaluable part of our team, who are trying to make sure that the family is safe, or the patient is safe. Mm -hmm. Then comes the question of recovery. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, when, it, when is dad going to be back to normal? Well. Yeah. It's, diff it's a little bit different than somebody at 55 having a planned hip replacement, and by four weeks, they're like, wow, this is great. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go play golf. No. Dad's 85. Dad's going to be slow. It's going to take time. And sometimes the family is unable to take care of them physically at home because it's very hard physically uh, to lift a person who's just had surgery. So they may end up going to rehab, where we have the equipment, we have the trained staff to help you with these challenges. So sometimes it's a little heartbreaking for us too. Yes. Uh, we try to navigate, we have social workers on our team who try to help this process. 
And I'm sure that it takes a lot. It takes your whole team because you just don't know. And it's emotional in the moment. It's very difficult when yes. something like this has a break, whether it's a child or an elderly. And we tend to think in the middle there, if they can handle it, it's okay. But it's all emotional. I yeah. mean, you have a broken bone. And um, sometimes people step in and want what's best for the patient. And right. it's hard to be rational when you see them there and they're hurting. They just want them to be out of pain. Right. So it's hard for them to realize that that's what you want too. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're there. That's, you know, from uh, right there. That's what you want. Uh, you bring up a good point about pain. Um, the most common question we get is, hey, my father's had a hip fracture, he's in pain, can you give him pain medication? Yes, I can give him pain medication, but there are multiple side effects. Mm. Uh, the senior population does not respond well to narcotics. They get very confused, they can hallucinate, and uh, the other part is, if they have a compromised kidney function or compromised liver function, most of these medications can affect that as well. So it's a balance of, okay, managing the pain and at the same time trying to make them a safe option rather than, uh, you know, throwing all these medications. So the family can get frustrated with it. We try and explain it to the best of our ability. Uh, but again, it's a challenge to do that. Yeah, I can see that. And what if a, what if it's a child who you know is in a lot of pain and couldn't do the obvious? If I'm sure there's young people or even in their teens and twenties who you might not be able to do the the traditional fix or operation, and they're in pain. How do you, do you handle that with people in pain? So when they come in for a surgery, and uh, we want to minimize the amount of narcotics, especially especially younger patients who are more prone to get dependent on it. And uh, the way we do it is we use local anesthesia, so we are able to numb up that area. There are medications, one of them is a common one called Expiril. It will give three days of lasting pain relief or numbing the site after surgery, thus uh, reducing the amount of pain medication you require. Our anesthesia colleagues are very helpful. They help us do something called blocks where they block, so let's say I'm doing a shoulder operation, they'll block the nerve around the shoulder, and so you're not feeling pain for the first two or three days, which are the more intense, uh, which is the most intense phase after an operation. Okay. So we use activities like that to help reduce and manage pain. And also, is it is it safe to say, and can we remember that it's not only blocking the pain, but does it also give the body a rest? Like there's more to it, right? When you have a pain medicine, you're letting the body rest and heal on its own. Is there any advantage to this pain medicine to help you heal? Yeah, uh, not exactly the pain medication, but we also use a lot of anti-inflammatory right. drugs. Mm -hmm. So think of it like ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. I like to call it at a super ibuprofen. <laughs> at a higher strength, there are drugs which we use to bring down inflammation. That certainly helps to give the body rest and to decrease the local inflammation in that area. Okay. Bring the swelling down and help with the pain. Okay, now what is the best thing to do? Say someone is out hiking mm -hmm. or they're at home, maybe they live in a remote area and they, they break a bone. They've obviously fallen and break, broken a bone. Help is on the way. What is the best thing that someone can do to help someone else until help gets there? So really if you're stuck in a remote area, find anything that you can use as a splint, even a folded newspaper. Oh, okay. okay. So folded newspaper, so it functions like a splint or a stick. Mm -hmm. If you've broken an ankle, 
and you're really stuck where you know help is three hours away you're on a remote hike tie it to your ankle <laughs> okay. elevate it have if you have family around ask for help try not to walk on it and uh, get some rest there as well okay and so the splint or stick is there to just put it at, at the brake to mobilize it yeah right. to immobilize yeah, it. immobilize it yeah, yeah. And to, you sometimes have to be creative about it. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, because you're really not carrying <laughs> crutches on a hike. You're not expecting yeah. to break something. Uh -huh. And uh, hopefully that will at least keep you safe till medical help arrives. Okay. Now, obviously, if you're close to a place where you can get medical help, I would say stop, go ask for medical help. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Don't just say, hey, I did, that did pretty good. I don't yeah. think you need any help. I can, I can yeah. roll a newspaper and make a splint. You're yeah. good. No, get, get help. Yeah, we're not <laughs> going to do sticks and stones. Uh, <laughs> no uh, sticks and stones. <laughs> yeah. If you're close to a hospital or an ER or an urgent care, uh -huh. we want to get some uh, supervised help. Yes, def supervised help, definitely. Yeah. I think you have a picture on your phone too, speaking of that. You had yeah. um, your, some special kids, which I'm not sure if we can get this, but we were talking earlier if we can. So these are so your kids and your assistants at the office. And we're going to see if, see if we can zoom in on yeah. that. So but you were teaching, they were interested in what it looks like when you, there you go, oh, there you go. How do, how it feels to have a cast. So this person, this is, this is what your child and you were showing them what it's like to have a cast. Yeah, right? I put a cast on both of my kids uh -huh. because they wanted to see what a cast feels like, what a patient feels like. Uh -huh. So I said, why don't you come to clinic? I'll, and we'll try it on on a Friday evening <laughs> and see what it feels like. There you go. So there you go. Were they impressed? Are they going to follow in your footsteps? And uh, they are. They're, very, they're, they're good kids and uh, they like to read a lot. So it was good for them to see what we do. Okay. Well, we may have to have them on here with you next time. <laughs> That'd be really interesting. Dr. Sure. Chatrath, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We'll see you next time on Helpline 3.